Coming up on today's show, what's going on in Russia? Reports of Ukraine bombing Russian bases. We'll also talk about LPNs in Alberta. Do we need to change the way that they're classified? And if we do get to Mars, what are we going to eat when we get there? Can we sustain life? Can we produce food? You know what? Probably can. We haven't done an update on the situation in Ukraine in a while, and there have been some developments. Russia yesterday unleashed what Ukrainian authorities called the latest, quote, massive missile attack across that country, striking homes, buildings, uh, civilians were killed, and once again targeting electrical uh, and water infrastructure in the area. Um, it really focused on Odessa a Black Sea port yesterday. Uh, and Ukraine's Air Force claims that they shot down more than 60 of the 70 missiles that were fired. But the war rages on, and as I said earlier, there's fears of uh, perhaps a dangerous escalation given what we saw inside of Russia. So to get some details on what's happening and where it might be going, we're going to chat with Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University and editor of the Canadian Military Journal author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press. Christian, thank you for joining us. Always appreciate your time. Shay, good morning. My pleasure. So, uh, obviously and clearly, the Russians are continuing their attack, their strategy, targeting infrastructure, right? I mean, that continues unabated. Yeah, and I think that's a clear reminder to anyone who thinks that Putin can be taken seriously in terms of negotiating. Clearly, if you're trying to uh, completely destroy the ability of an entire country to survive for a bitter through a bitter cold winter, uh, it shows that clearly any negotiation is not in the cards, and uh, that Putin uh, continues to persist on his political objectives to make Ukraine unviable as a country. Uh, and it reminds us the support that Ukraine is going to need for. Uh, some of probably the most difficult months, uh, both in terms of fighting and in terms of uh, the survival of the Ukrainian society. Um, how effective has it been in terms of targeting and weakening the infrastructure? We know he's gone after, uh, you know, drinking water, sanitation, electricity, all those sorts of things. How effective has that been? Ukraine says they managed to rebuild pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a good question, because, of course, we hear about the percentage of infrastructure that's out of commission, either temporarily or permanently. But we also know from military strategy that these sorts of efforts to break the will of civilian populations uh, don't work. And that, to the contrary, it tends to harden the resolve because the people who don't want to live under those conditions, by and large, will have left Ukraine some time ago, knowing what was likely to come and the people who are staying behind uh, have simply decided that for the sake of the future of their country and supporting their country they're willing to make considerable sacrifice and of course Ukraine also prepared for these extreme hardships and its populations for the extreme hardships so uh, I'm not convinced that Putin will prevail but of course the more you keep uh, chipping away at critical infrastructure in Ukraine uh, the more difficult life is going to uh, become and the more difficult is going to get for Ukraine to try to rebuild infrastructure as quickly as Russia destroys it. Yeah, no question about it. What do you make of the bombings inside of Russia, the air bases in Russia that were targeted over the weekend? 
Yeah, I think there's two dimensions to this. Ukraine is getting uh, better at intercepting the projectiles that are being flown. In particular, it seems that Russia uh, is back to firing missiles, which are a bit easier for Ukrainian air defense to intercept, uh, especially sort of some of the missiles that uh, Russia has been using because it's most sophisticated missiles. They, Russia seems to have a considerable uh, trouble reproducing. Uh, and at the same time, so one is sort of this deterrence effect of, of course, defending themselves. The other is uh, a deterrence effect of trying to demonstrate to Russia that it has the capability to strike deep inside Russian territory. But that is going to make allies and partners quite nervous because, of course, that could lead to an escalation. That's precisely the reason why allies and partners have not uh, come through with the longer range, higher precision weaponry that Ukraine has been asking for for months uh, because uh, allies and partners don't want Western supplied uh, weapons to be used to target a Russian uh, territory proper for fear of uh, how Putin might uh, react and retaliate. Does it signal any sort of change in direction? I mean, like, could this be seen as Ukraine going on the offensive? I mean, how how do you make it in terms of where this might be headed next? Yeah, I think there's two things. The Ukrainians have obviously figured out that uh, Russia has not deployed its air defenses to defend right. some of its own air bases. And so uh, they figured out where there's sort of some weak links and where they can target those weaknesses. Uh, the other is, I think, trying to force Ukraine to disperse its cap- uh, sorry, for Ukraine to force Russia to disperse some of its capabilities. So now they have their air defenses concentrated around the territories for which Russia has been fighting. This means they will not have to spread out the air defenses, which means there's going to be fewer air defenses in the areas uh, that uh, uh, that are being heavily contested between Russia and Ukraine, which then leaves those areas more vulnerable also uh, to Ukrainian drones, for instance. So I think this is also a strategy of trying to um, force Russia with the already dwindling capabilities that it has to dilute those capabilities further so as to be able to sustain at least some of the fight for Ukraine uh, throughout the winter, which is likely going to be a fight that is going to be waged more a bit at a distance through drones and artillery and probably less uh, in the trenches of uh, of infantry because of how difficult the terrain is in the winter. We've heard so much about the winter, Christian. We know that, I mean, it's here, right? We're into December and, and their climate is very similar to ours. Has it changed things dramatically to this point? Uh, sure. I mean, it has significantly uh, slowed the progress on both sides because the ground is now uh, very muddy, which means it is very inhospitable. So essentially, it's very difficult to make any sort of progress outside of main roads. So whoever holds those main roads um, and now controls much of the uh, the supply lines. Nonetheless, uh, Ukraine has made it clear that if, if Ukraine were to relent at this point, it would allow Russia to regroup for spring offensive. And so the objective for Ukraine Ukraine is going to be perhaps less so than uh, taking territory than to continue to deplete uh, Russian supply lines and Russian capabilities to regroup um, and to muster uh, their equipment and their people so that in the spring, Russia does not have the capabilities to mount a major counteroffensive. Christian, great insight as always. I appreciate you being here, sir. You know, we we spend a lot of time talking about healthcare here on the show for good reason. It's important to all of us, and uh, we know that we've got a situation going on um, in Alberta right now, right? And whenever we do, we get into a conversation about how we come up with more um, 
more of the staff that we need. That's the biggest issue we're facing. We talked with Dr. Shazman with Thani yesterday, the ER doc, saying, you know what? Human resources are, are the problem right now. We're, we're, we just don't have the, the number of people that we need to, to run the wards and, and the rest of the way that we need to be doing it right now. So then we get into the conversation of how do we, if you can say create more or find more or bring more on board, how do you do that? And uh, like I said, that's that's a long-term situation. I don't think we can do anything that's going to help us immediately, unfortunately, um, but it's important things to talk about. But we do know it's important to hang on to the ones that we do have, right? Retention. Let, let's keep the healthcare workers in Alberta that are in Alberta right now. We don't want them going to other areas. Um, there's a campaign underway in our province right now to change the way that we designate licensed practical nurses. And it gets right to the heart of this matter because Alberta rules kind of put us at a disadvantage compared to a bunch of other places on this topic. So we're going to chat now with Kathy Howe, who is the executive director of the Alberta Association of Nurses. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, uh, good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me. Let's just, uh, so we all understand what we're talking about here. Let's, can we just go through the different designations that nurses have in Alberta? They're not all viewed the same by the system. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, you bet. So we have licensed practical nurses you've just been referring to. They are uh, a group of nurses. They have a two-year diploma education. And uh, you find LPNs working primarily on the front lines, working with patients who tend to be uh, more stable, whose outcomes are more predictable. That would be that. Uh, then we have registered nurses. Registered nurses um, have a four-year uh, university degree. You find registered nurses uh, working on the front lines as well, uh, often in positions of of charge or in very acute positions such as in the ICU, the trauma areas of an emergency department, et cetera. We also have nurse practitioners who are prepared at a master's level and have a much broader scope of practice, are able to uh, work much more independently. Uh, we also have registered psychiatric nurses, nurses who have a, uh, either can have a two-year diploma or four-year and who's practice really focuses on caring for people with mental health issues. So those are sort of the four disciplines that we see in Alberta. Okay. And obviously all different levels of education, all different levels of, you know, work that they do. Um, when we talk about licensed practical nurses, and I know there's a campaign to get their designation changed, how are they viewed? Uh, from what I was reading, it's sort of almost in a way auxiliary nurses or assistant nurses on a different level, right? That's right, Shea. What you're talking about really is uh, something that's been designated to them in the Labor Relations Act. Right, so yes. this was, yeah, so about 20 years ago when um, they were sort of determining what bargaining units would be in health and what disciplines would be in each of the uh, bargaining units, at that time, licensed practical nurses were functioning more as a as a nursing aide. In fact, that was kind of the birth of LPNs way back in the war. Uh, we, we started introducing this uh, nursing aide concept really to help nurses. And nurses in that case were referring to registered nurses with uh, help patients with things like feeding or bathing or dressing, kind of what we call activities of of daily living. And, and, you know, 20 years ago, that was still the primary focus of the LPNs. The education was much shorter, less than a year. So that was the work they were doing. And that was a really appropriate place. And, you know, other 
people in that group, an auxiliary nursing would be a healthcare aide or an orderly or a service worker, are all in that sort of category of auxiliary nursing. But over the last 20 years, uh, licensed practical nurse, the role, the education, the responsibility has really gone from a nursing aide to where it is today as a, you know, professional nurse with a, with a, a specific scope of practice. They don't work under RNs or under nurse practitioners. They work with them. They're accountable for their own work. And so there's been a lot of change, but the labor, uh, sorry, labor relations act has not changed and it hasn't kept up. And so they still have them categorized as auxiliary nurses. And that's really what this group of LPNs are advocating to change. Is that fair? I mean, let's take a look at what happens in other parts of the country. Are they treated differently? Do they have a different classification, say in BC or Ontario or Saskatchewan? Is it different? It's, um, I can't speak to other provinces, but I can say it certainly is fair. Um, I, I, you know, they're not doing an auxiliary nursing role anymore. Right. They are providing direct care. And so, you know, so that's a fair change. It won't change their scope of practice. What they can do in the workplace will not change. Uh, I don't imagine it will change their rate of pay, their, their union contract, right. you know, wouldn't be changed as a result of that. But I think it goes to what you were speaking about in your introduction when you talked about really valuing nurses yeah. and not being able to afford to lose any nurses anywhere. And, and so if, you know, I, this started as a small group of LPNs, and uh, if you're following them on Facebook, you can see their numbers are just growing and growing. And so it obviously is a concern to a lot of LPNs in Alberta. And so, you know, it's outdated language uh, that happens in these documents. And, and likely, you know, it's very much time to, to get it updated and get it to accurately reflect what licensed practical nurses do. And if that values them or makes them feel more valued, there's absolutely merit in doing that. And, and I, you know, I imagine there's some concern. I'm seeing some things on the text line. Well, wait a minute. They don't have the same education. They don't have the same training. We're not talking about saying, oh, suddenly they're going to be, they're going to be registered nurses or, or nurse mm -hmm. practitioners, right? It's just we're going to change the way we designate the work that they do to bring it up to the reality of what it is they actually do. Yeah, it's it really is just updating the language. It's not changing what they're doing. It's not changing their scope. But and it really is around uh, those LPNs who work, um, you know, primarily for Alberta Health Services, Covenant Health, the large employers, and who are represented by a bargaining unit, which happens to be the uh, AUPE. And it's it's just how that language is worded um, in the contract. Um, but it doesn't change them. They don't. It's not going to change their scope or the work that they're doing. It's going to change right. the language. And I, I think there have been efforts in the past to just change it and then discovered, oh, you can't just change it. It's actually in the Labor Relations Act. And so that's where it needs to be changed. And so that's what they're advocating for. They're saying, yeah, let's do what needs to be done to get this language updated. It Would that... Um is there an issue around retention, I guess, is the first question. Is there a problem with, you know, um, LPNs taking a look at other places and saying, you know what, we're treated differently, perhaps we're treated better, and that's something that, you know, are we having an issue with retention? Well, I think overall we're having a uh, an issue with nursing retention, and we're seeing increased nursing 
vacancies in the province. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not really seeing the number of nurses registered to work in the province decreasing. The numbers are very comparable. Um, we, you know, the RNs and NPs very comparable to last year. The LPNs are just in the process renewing so we won't have those numbers until into the new year but very comparable but not enough nurses working the number of shifts we need them to or they used to do in the healthcare issue so i would say retention you know is an issue uh you can leave to go to another province but you can also kind of leave uh and stay within your province so by that i mean maybe giving up your permanent position not working as many shifts not picking up as many shifts and and i think we've talked about that a lot and and that certainly is an issue in alberta right now for nurses yeah sure is kathy great insight i really appreciate your time today thank you so much We're going to be talking about Mars. Um, did you see The Martian, the movie? Um, that Matt Damon guy, he lived on potatoes for months, right? I mean, that's basically all he had because that's all he could grow. Now, we've talked a lot about getting humans to the red planet one day. There's work being done as we speak. So if we do get there, we're, we're going to have to come up with a way to feed them while they're there. And it, it can't be just potatoes. It can't be. Um, so what might humans eat? If we ever do get to Mars, we're going to chat with Lenore Newman, who is a Canada Research Chair in Food Security and the Environment at the University of Fraser Valley. Um, and Lenore, you actually done some work on this and put together, did you write a book? Was it a full book that you wrote on what will feed humans on Mars? That is correct. And <laughs> thanks for having me on. Um, during the pandemic, um, a lot of people baked bread and I'm not, I'm not very good at bread. So, uh, a friend of mine and myself, we wrote a book called Dinner on Mars, and it started as a bit of uh, almost an argument over whether we could feed people on Mars. And so we ended up uh, taking some time digging into that. And yeah, my co-author, Dr. Evan Fraser, is from University of Guelph, and we just dug into it and uh, tried to figure out what would the rocket man eat. And that seems like a much better use of your pandemic downtime than baking bread. I'm really glad you did it because these kinds of conversations just fascinate me. So let's start with what, where, where did you start? I guess is the good question. I mean, we, we've got some humans in space. We know that we're taking food to space and things like that. So that's probably part of it. But we can't just take everything, right? We actually have to produce some stuff in space. Is that where you started? That is true. What we realized uh, was that Mars is too far for takeout. And uh, <laughs> we also know, and I, I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but uh, Matt Damon would have been poisoned by the potatoes. Really? Uh, Why? The soil, on, the soil on Mars is toxic. It has a really potent, a really potent carcinogen in it. So we actually started with the soil and tried to figure out how could we process it to make it so it wouldn't be toxic potatoes. And uh, so the base of the food system on Mars starts with um, cyanobacteria, but uh, that's fancy word for blue-green algae. And on Earth, blue-green algae is mostly a problem, but it turns out if you grow it on Mars, you end up with some organic matter, but you also, it cleans the soil for you. So that was stage one. And then our areas of expertise in our day jobs are mostly around then how do you make protein and carbohydrates and, you know, fruits and vegetables starting from the soil. So 
yeah, we uh, we built it up from there. And I think we can safely say you can grow enough food on Mars to support a little city, but it would be very hard. Really? Hey, okay. I mean, now... When we we did a conversation a couple of weeks ago, it got FDA approval. This lab grown meat is that is that something that you're talking? I mean, maybe I mean, there's no animals running around on Mars. We're not going to have cattle farms up on Mars. I wouldn't think either. Um, but we grow the meat. Basically, it's like test tube steaks, right? Did you look into that? We did, and that actually is an entire chapter of the book because <laughs> we realized that was a real sticking point. Is Animal agriculture doesn't work in space because it's quite inefficient, and let alone that animals don't do well in space. And uh, we have some experiments that have been done with that, and uh, they tend to get very confused and very annoyed. Um, One of my favorite is there's some great videos online of cats in zero gravity. They they don't like it. It's it's not a good scene. Um, And so, yeah, we realized that It's going to have to be basically a vegan diet, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. Maybe a few fish if we're really careful. But, yeah, you end up with, um, well, then where do we get the protein? And, yeah, lab-grown meat, definitely going to be part of it where you're taking yeast and bacteria and fungus and using them to brew protein the same way you brew beer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Uh, doesn't sound appetizing, but hey, it, you got to survive. So if, if that's what we're going to eat, that's what we're going to eat. Now, getting back to the producing uh, fruit and vegetables, you say enough to support a small city. I mean, how? It, like, we're not going to be planting farms, I wouldn't think, right? Like you say the, the soil has its issues. So, so how do you produce that quantity? Well, the good news is we're developing that technology on Earth really rapidly. This idea of indoor vertical farms or really advanced greenhouse technology. And in a way, it's because we need it here. And I mean, if uh, any of your listeners have tried to buy lettuce in the last little while, you've probably had the same thing that I have where you go in here like, holy, I'm going to have cabbage. (laughs) (laughs) Good old cabbage. That's what we're eating today. Um, So here in Canada, we're actually really trying to push forward that industry of using hydroponics to grow fruits and vegetables year-round where you need them at scale. And those technologies are advancing rapidly, and they're going to, yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure that our Martians will have really good vegetables and fruit because that we can do. So it's going to be a bit of a highlight. You'll, you'll be eating a lot of really nice salads, but they'll be better than the salads <laughs> we have here. Interesting. Okay. Now, like you say, a lot of these strategies, I mean, we're using them in different ways already. It's not like we're starting from scratch. We know there is a possibility with some of the things we're already doing to make this work, right? This is already happening. This is true. Yeah. We basically are building this on a terrestrial food system. We can actually learn things about Earth's food system from trying to do this. Now, one of the The weird things that caught me by surprise is here on Earth, the one part of the food system that's just perfect is our carbohydrates. So our grains, our pulses, it's really technologically advanced. They're really cheap. We do it really well. I mean, Canada is a carbohydrate powerhouse, as you know. Mm -hmm. And you try and do that on Mars, and it's really it turns out it's really hard because those crops take up so much area. 
to the point we realized that people on Mars will just have to eat less carbohydrate, which actually is probably a bit of a good thing right. because we eat too many carbohydrates. But it means a food like spaghetti might be a bit of a luxury product you only have once in a while simply because it takes so much room to grow you know, wheat and lentils and foods like that. Interesting. So, so like you say, as we sort of just explore this, I mean, we're obviously we're not doing it, um, but just the concepts and the practices and the things that we're attempting and developing, they'll be applicable down here on Earth and possibly make things better for us on this planet, too. That's what we realized as we dug into it. It started as a fun exercise yeah. because, you know, we were stuck inside. Um, but we quickly realized there were actually lessons, certainly around protein, because we know that our protein system is quite inefficient. It takes up a lot of room. It's, uh, it needs to be changed to uh, be a little less intensive. And we, you know, we see plant-based proteins and we see these lab-based proteins emerging as cellular agriculture. And so we think, looking at how you would feed Mars using as few resources as possible and also closing the loop. That's another thing that becomes very obvious is on Mars, you couldn't waste anything. You'd always have to be recycling. And really, we should be doing that here. It's just we haven't had the reason to, but we do because we have, um, you know, climate problems we need to address. So, Closing the loop, trying to have a more diverse sort of protein portfolio, maybe eating a few less carbs, doubling down on fruit and vegetables and producing them where you actually are. These are all things, they're lessons that we can apply here that would also work to make sure that a Martian community was, you know, happy and had meals. So bottom line, it's possible. We could do it. We could sustain life on Mars. It is possible. Yeah, it is possible. And uh, the other thing that uh, was a little playful, but we realized is anytime humans have, have, you know, moved to a new environment that's really harsh, one of the first things they do is figure out how to produce alcohol. So I'm pretty sure we'll be fermenting other things on Mars, too, pretty quickly. And who knows, maybe one day a good Martian red wine or a good Martian whiskey <laughs> will be competing on Earth with our home product. Wouldn't we're that ways be something? Away from that, but uh, <laughs> again, never underestimate the uh, the urge for people to get slightly intoxicated. You're so absolutely that. that happens. No matter what, we will figure out a way of doing that. Uh, Lenore, so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.